Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 315. This is the weekly podcast about American flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This podcast is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free nationwide online directory to florists, shops, and studios who design with American-grown flowers and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor for 2017, Certified American Grown Flowers. The Certified American Grown program and label provide a guarantee for designers and consumers on the source of their flowers. Take pride in your flowers and buy with confidence. Ask for Certified American Grown Flowers. To learn more, visit AmericanGrownFlowers.org. Today's guest is a woman who I met virtually nearly six years ago, but we only recently connected face-to-face. Her name is Nellie Gardner. When the two of us corresponded in late 2011, Nell was the proprietor of Flower Fields based outside Rochester, New York. At the time, I was wrapping up the final manuscript for the 50 Mile Bouquet, and one of the chapters I wrote was about the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers called From Their Fields to Your Vase. I was a member of ASCFG and a frequent reader of the member's bulletin board where flower farmers posed questions online and engaged in discussion on all sorts of topics. One question caught my eye from Emily Watson of Milwaukee, Wisconsin-based Stems Cut Flowers. As it turns out, Emily is a past guest of this podcast. We featured her in episode 185 a few years ago when we discussed her decision to add a new floral studio called Wood Violet to her business model. Emily's question about the viability and sustainability of working 80-hour weeks as a flower farmer and wanting to know that it was worth it prompted heartfelt reactions from fellow ASCFG member growers around the country. One message came from Nellie Gardner, who wrote this. I have been able to make a frugal living by growing cut flowers for 20 years with no outside income or partner with an income. I can only do it by working like a madwoman most of the year, doing weddings, developing mini outlets, and extending my Zone 5 season by making Christmas wreaths and offering workshops and classes. To make a living with cut flowers, you not only have to grow efficiently, have quality product, sell to florists, wedding and, and special event designers, and sell in both retail and wholesale channels. You also have to reinvent yourself to sell all your skills to the public who is hungry for anything real. The competition is cheap labor in South America and the use of flowers as a loss leader in stores like Sam's Club and BJ's. Only some consumers will buy on conscience and not price. After reading her comments online, I contacted Nellie to ask her permission to include them in the 50 mile bouquet. And I promised to send her a copy of the book as my thanks. She agreed, and I believe the honest and sincere answer she wrote in response to Emily's initial question gave readers an unusual peek into the life of a small-scale specialty cut flower grower. Over the years, I would catch glimpses of Nellie and her flowers, including a beautiful spread in Country Gardens magazine, for which I'm a contributing editor. It was one of those lavish romantic flower farming stories that prompted me to say, oh, I wish I had been able to write that. After all these years, Nellie and I finally met in person this past August when she presented a roundtable topic at the Garden Writers Association Annual Symposium in Buffalo. 
I was ecstatic when I saw her name on the program. And the topic was a departure for Nellie. I thought, rather than discussing cut flower farming, Nellie was there to share the story of gardening at the historic Greycliff Estate, a Frank Lloyd Wright designed home on Lake Erie, built in 1926 for the Darwin Martin family. The grounds at Greycliff were originally designed by Ellen Biddle Shipman, a well-known landscape architect and contemporary of Wright's. Once grand, like the estate, the gardens declined with age, and Nellie has assumed the role of horticulturist, who is restoring the flower borders, harvest gardens, and outdoor living spaces there. Well now, this was a new role for Nellie, and it all makes sense, especially now that I see this title on her website for flower fields, quote, cut flower grower, horticulture, and gardening consultation, end quote. I reintroduced myself to Nellie and asked if she would join the podcast to share her story. What you'll hear today is our rather spontaneous interview recorded in the lobby of the Buffalo Marriott Hotel. Here's a short intro from Nellie's About section of the Flowerfields website. Nellie grows cut flowers on her historic Spencerport farm and is also the horticulturist at the Frank Lloyd Wright Darwin Martin House in Buffalo. Her experience growing up on a hard scrabble farm on Cape Breton Island, Nova Scotia, gave her motivation to put herself through college to learn the science of soils and plants. With no formal high school education and no money, she earned a degree in agriculture from Nova Scotia Agricultural College and Cornell University. Working for the Integrated Pest Management Program at Cornell, Cornell Cooperative Extension, and her own private consulting business has given her a wide range of experience she applies to her approach to horticulture. Seeing opportunity and making use of everything she finds grew out of necessity, and reuse and repurposing our instinctive Tanelli. She has grown cut flowers for over 20 years and consults in horticultural problem-solving and cut flower growing. Please visit DeborahPrinzing.com for episode 315 to see photos that Nellie has shared, as well as my photos, of the tour she led for conference attendees to see the Martin House, another Frank Lloyd Wright property where Nellie also oversees the grounds and landscape restoration, as we mentioned earlier. Wow, at a time when so many are seeking ways to diversify their brands and their businesses, I love seeing how one flower farmer's path is taking her in a direction that is creatively challenging, professionally rewarding, and thoroughly relevant to growing cut flowers. Enjoy our conversation. Welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, and I am delighted today to introduce you to Nellie Gardner. Do you prefer Nell? Nell is fine. Either way, I mean, sometimes people don't get Nell because they call me Neil, and then they find out I'm actually a woman. So (laughs) Nellie sometimes works really well because most people can get that. Okay, so Nellie Gardner, you are named appropriately for your career. Um, And Nellie just gave a fabulous presentation at the Garden Writers Association conference where I'm at in Buffalo, New York, about her role uh, as a horticulturist on two really important Frank Lloyd Wright historic properties. So I'm going to let her talk about that. But her big secret is, in her past life, she was a flower farmer. And a lot of people in ASCFG may know you. Actually, let's start about uh, your flower farm. You owned flower fields in Spencerport, New York, outside of Rochester. And... um, Tell me a little bit about how you became a flower farmer and what those what period of time was that? So I started flower farming in 1992. Um, I had grown up on a self-sufficient, which was kind of insufficient at times, <laughs> farm in uh, Cape Breton Island, Nova Scotia. And my parents were sort of like living off the land, uh, left their um, they left their lives in the in the U.S. and they wanted to you know experiment with 
living off the land, but Cape Breton Island was sort of a tough place to do that. And they didn't really know, you know, the scientific methods because they were both teachers. And um, I saw that how, how much knowledge you had to have in order to successfully grow things, especially in harsh climate and soils like that. And, and Nova Scotia is like zone what? Three or it four? It was probably zone three. Okay. Yeah. And it was very like, um, it was a very maritime climate. So a lot of wind and rain and ice and kind of unforgiving. It was a little unforgiving. It was for, for food. Forget about food. flowers. Yeah. Yeah. Food. Oh, okay. They did a lot of fishing at some point mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we grew up there and, um, I said, you know, at some point, I had no high school education. We didn't go to high school there. The school was a very long ways away. So you're we basically of... taught ourselves. Wow. Didn't even have, I don't even have a diploma or anything. Wow. But I decided early on, I really wanted to learn the science behind what we were doing. So I took uh, animal science classes in Nova Scotia Agriculture College. I sort of begged my way in. I washed dishes in order to pay for it. Wow. Um, worked really hard, made, got scholarships. I ended up winning a um, international cattle judging championship. While I while I was at Nova Scotia Ag College, I was an alternate because they didn't pick women back then. You were like in your twenties. Yes. Oh my gosh. And the the coach was like, "No, you can't go because you're a woman. You know, we really don't do this." And anyway, um, they one of the uh, one of the people on the team, the men got sick, so I had to go. So it was in Toronto, and I beat Cornell at this judging championship. And they're like, who's that? So then I decided I want to go to Cornell because I'd read books. The, the books I was reading were Cornell professors. So I went there and they're like, oh, you know, you're the one. <laughs> it kind of helped me. So um, anyway, I graduated from there and uh, started working for Cornell. And I realized that, um, you know, I'm advising farmers and helping them with their, with their cultural practices and pest management. And I really wanted to focus on all the details of the science of growing things. And I said, I want to do this with cut flowers mm. because they're all coming from foreign countries. And I really wanted it to be, I wanted anybody, anybody to be able to buy a locally grown bouquet that was a very healthy, happy flowers that weren't, didn't look like um, they were grown by a home gardener that you know were too open or not open enough or the wrong variety. I mean, uh, your garden bouquets are beautiful, but I wanted something that would hold up that people could, uh, that I could sell commercially. Right. You know, so I had supermarkets. I started in 1992 in Batavia and eventually moved to Spencerport. And where's Batavia? Uh, Batavia is in between Buffalo and Rochester. It's okay. a farm community. Okay. And I used to drive all my flowers to, to Rochester and also had local Batavia people. Did like probably over a thousand weddings. Now, okay, can we just stop for a minute? 92 is about the time when the Andean Trade Preference Agreement kicked in. And is that when like the whole um, marketplace became uh, kind of fascinated with imported flowers? Like they were, they were supposedly more exotic or well, like local flowers weren't yeah. important? Okay, so when I was growing flowers, A, no one cared about local. B, um, it was uh, the internet explosion and people could say, Oh, because, you know, you and I remember when the Internet started. I do. That's yeah. scary. So <laughs> I remember people telling me that they could get on the Internet and get cheap roses from South America, and that was just fine. Right. And they didn't need, you know, my locally grown flowers. Your highly educated yeah. agronomist Agronomy flowers. Agronomy flowers <laughs> that were, you know, picture perfect and, and you know. Wow. So my farm was a beautiful farm, no weeds, you know. I used... Uh, um, you know, agronomic practices such as, you know, 
plastic, uh, biodegradable plastic with, you know, one of the first people to use that, trickle irrigation, uh, staking, I mean, fertigation, everything was done um, to produce very healthy, high quality flowers. Wow. And I delivered to Rochester, um, some to Buffalo, and I did weddings everywhere. So you really- And I delivered locally as well. I took care of the local people in Batavia first. I delivered to the hospital wow. and didn't make money on it, but I wanted people there that supported me to to give back to them because that's where I started. That was your community. That's where I started, yeah. So really, when you said you were doing weddings, were you designing flowers yes. for the weddings? You were a farmer yes. florist before that phrase ever was invented. Yes. And I didn't even know really what I was doing, uh, but I, you know what I always thought? Well, if I don't know what, I, what I'm doing, I said, you know, I, I always had to be resourceful as a kid because to survive, we had to be resourceful. I mean, I know every plant in the wild you can eat. Wow. Um, so I would think, well, if I was really a florist, how would I do this? Mm. And I never took any floral classes, but I would experiment with things on my own time. And I would say, is this hostile leaf gonna hold up? You know, how do I make a boutonniere? And I would do all this stuff, and then I would put together the wedding. And you know what? All these years, I never had any problems or disasters because I did thorough research before I did it. And that was the important thing. I just researched it. And That's did, just the type of know, person you are. Exactly. I used my little science brain to figure it out. And but then, this is before you could watch a, a YouTube video on yes. how to make a boutonniere. Right. You exactly. just figured it out. I just did it. And the thing that I liked was um, I developed a clientele that knew that if they got flowers to me, they'd be beautiful flowers. And, you know, I might not be the arranger of the year, might not get that award, mm -hmm. but the flowers were spectacular. And my arrangement was very um, informal. It was like Martha Stewart mm -hmm. before Martha Stewart mm -hmm. did that. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like I grew Lysianthus from the time I opened up my farm in 92. Wow. I started growing all of the, I researched flowers from everywhere and I grew things that people were not growing. Yeah. So, so the first farm, was was it also called Flower Fields? Yes. And what, what was your acreage in Batavia? It was uh, between two and three acres. I had some that was in wildflowers mm -hmm. and then I had perennials and annuals. So it was about three acres total. Wow. And yeah. were you supporting yourself on that? Were you also yes. still at Cornell? Yes. No, self-supportive. Wow. Yep. Self-supportive and I actually uh, was divorced at that point. So I was really supporting myself. You were it. Yeah, I was it. And so what, what happened? What prompted you to move to the Spencerport land? And was that larger? Um, well, after I was divorced, I wanted to, you know, um, my farm was close to my ex-husband's. He got remarried or whatever. So I moved to closer to my market. Mm -hmm. My son had gone to college and, um, I bought this farm. It was $40,000, but it was, you know, the reason why I bought it, had the most beautiful soil and it was in the middle of this area it was the old lake iroquois lake bed and it was like it was a sandy beach at one point wow this was the most beautiful sandy loam soil you'd ever seen and i and it had been a cut flower farm back in the early 1900s really yes and so you i did all this research wow. and i bought this house that had a blue tarp on the roof i can't even tell you it was so bad there was animals living in the house so i first had to get my dog to get the animals out and then say, you know, hello people, hello animals, I'm here. So. <laughs> was the house habitable? No. Okay. Um, and you really bought it for the farmland. I bought it for the land and, and the house, uh, I had a, a really good friend, John, who helped me with this project and he did an amazing amount of work. The two of us together worked hand in hand and restored this house. Wow. And it, 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 I sold it for $150,000 recently. So I knew that it was a labor of love, but let me tell you, it, everywhere I went on the property, 
if you dug up, you would discover old flower vases and old flower um, tools. And wow. they were growing seeds in the basement and they were planting the fields to flowers. And across the road was a huge bank of greenhouses where they grew cut flowers in the greenhouse. This is obviously like pre 1960s or yes, something. Yes, this would okay. have been like in the 1930s, 40s, even into the 50s. Wow, yeah. wow. Um, I found out the history, I researched, I talked to the people, I talked to two ladies who were in their 90s who worked on my farm. They, they grew some flower, some seed for Harris Seed, because Harris Seed is right near there. Oh, right. And they pollinated, for 10 cents an hour, they pollinated petunias with paintbrushes. And they used to get in arguments over who was better at it. Oh my goodness. You know, right when they were talking to me. Okay, so that really foreshadows your current career, yes. this obsession with historic gardens. Yes. So before we move on to talking about that, I want to just wrap up on flower fields. At, at some point, um, like, what was your market? Was it like half grocery and half weddings? Or like, when was you? When I basically figured out this is how my marketing went. Um, and as, as you quoted in um, your first book, uh, um, the local flower book, mm -hmm. 50 mile bouquet, 50 mile bouquet mm -hmm. that um, I wanted to use every single flower on my property. I didn't want to work and not have it pay off. So I landscaped with flowers. I basically, out of necessity, the place was beautiful, but everything was for cutting and selling. And there was opportunity. No, like, no pleasure garden. You had to, it, well, had to be, it was a beautiful garden. Yeah. It was a beautiful place. And I gave a lot of tours, but basically I did, um, uh, I sold to some farm markets. I didn't do farm markets, but I sold to some markets. And I, di I did weddings, and I did a local grocery store, and I had retail. So basically, I could. S it was sort of like all the top stuff went to the florist. That was the first picking. Mm -hmm. And the second picking was my weddings. And the third picking was the shop, the groceries, you know, and the market. So yeah. I could, you know, if... if like good, better, best, or best, And also better, the good. colors, like like mm. no one wanted red and, you right. know, no one wanted, you know, then the whole peach craze came in for flowers and, and, and uh, you know, ivory and peach. So you're not going to sell anything other than that, right, all summer long. Yeah. So all the other bright colors went to the market yeah. or went to this grocery store and they sold out because they were so bright and... Yeah, yeah so that was sort of uh, the division in the marketplace that you were prepared for. It yes. sounds like you were very adaptable. Yes, I adapted, yes. Every and year I would sort of tweak what I was growing, and I came up with sort of the best flowers for my markets and also the best quantities of each thing so you got the right mix. So when did you sort of uh, see that there was an appreciation for local in the midst of all of this obsession with imports? Was it just because you, were like, you had a community and you knew your neighbors and people wanted to support you even when you moved well, to Spencerport? Well, um, I started in 1992 and I had the same customers and people would find me. And that was probably because of the quality and mm -hmm. the experience. Mm -hmm. Because coming to my farm, they could see that it was a real, it was just a beautiful place, real professional. Uh, you know, they, they were just, um, they were astonished by the before and the after. Yeah. And they could see what it was and then what it, how it evolved. And they, people wanted to connect to how to do that. You know, mm -hmm. how did you do this? Or mm -hmm. take a piece of that home with them. Mm -hmm. Or understand the connection to the land that I've had, that yeah. I've had my whole life. Right. And that I could go somewhere and take something like that and see the beauty in it and then make it evolve and then make it pay for itself. And so how long were you there? And you started in 92 and then you moved to Spencerport. Yes. And when was that? Uh, 2008. Oh. I bought the property. Okay. So it wasn't so that long that I was Only 10 there. years ago. Yeah. 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 In that period of time when we met virtually, this... Didn't Country Gardens do a big article yes. about you? Yes, 2013 or 14, yes. I think. Yes, yes, and that, yeah. 
I was looking at that going, wait, I wanted to write that story. I know her. <laughs> I know her. Um, yeah, the top 10 cut flowers. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And so um, what prompted you to, to kind of go to this new chapter that you're at? You sold your farm. So what happened was uh, I had volunteered at the Darwin Martin House because, in Buffalo because my brother is a big Frank Lloyd Wright um, aficionado. He loves Frank Lloyd Wright. So... I saw this big poster about the Darwin Martin House when I was in the airport, and uh, I said, well, I better go there for my brother. And then I found out when I was there that she grew cut flowers. Mrs. So Mrs. Darwin, Martin. Okay, so Darwin Martin had a, a commission to Frank Lloyd Wright yes. home. In, yes, in this very is progressive a, okay. thinking person, and he was in Buffalo working for the Larkin Soap Company. Okay. He grew up, his mother had passed away, he had sort of a rough childhood, went to New York City, sold soap when he was 12 years old. And then when he was 17, he was so brilliant and hardworking, they hired him as their first clerk. And he basically engineered the Larkin Soap Company's sales so that it grew to like the largest um, retail, wasn't retail, but it was... Uh, like a consumer product? Well, it was, would have been like the Amazon.com of its time. Huh. It was delivered to people and they kept a card catalog system on all the customers and would call them and write to them for their next order. Wow. And he had a premium system, so sales just boomed. And he was a, a millionaire at the turn of the century, and he um, was very progressive thinking. Hired Frank Lloyd Wright for this house, and then in 1905, and then uh, the summer home at Greycliff in 1928. So you, on a whim, said, my brother likes Frank Lloyd Wright. I'm going to go check out this yes. house. It's kind of close to where I live. Yes. Okay. So I drove there, 45 minutes, and I said, I took the tour, and there was birds flying through the house, and Margie, who was the, the only employee or something at the time, said, yeah, Mrs. Martin loved cutting flowers, and of course, at the end, they give you this little card that says, check this box if you want to be a volunteer. I don't know why I did that. So I checked the box that says gardening, you know, and it, it could have been a year later. They called me and said, you know, we're starting this garden committee. Do you want to be on it? And I went to the first meeting, and... They were getting ready for this grand opening and Hillary Clinton and all these officials were coming and they were decorating the place and gardening and whatever. And the, the uh, person in charge of the committee didn't show up. So me being a little bossy, I took over kind of, right? I'm like, well, you could design the planters like this and this and this and you like, could what, this. what year was this? Um, this was probably 2006, okay. I think. And, um, so I volunteered for a couple years there, you know, and uh, they put me in charge of volunteers right away as a volunteer. So you were trying to get people to come in and, and just maintain and weed and, and deck, you know, keep the gardens just looking. Just to keep it, you know, there wasn't a lot left, but just to sort of, you know, they had, they were building the new um, visitor center and they installed a whole landscape there and they had some historic plants they had were caretaking and wow. so it was basically developing and uh, so then... I stopped, when I moved to Spenceport, I stopped volunteering there. It was too far. Right. And then three years later, in 2010, they called me and said, would you come and interview here? Margie said, hi, this is Margie. You remember me? I'm like, yeah, I remember you. She's like, would you mind coming and talking to us about working here? Huh. So, you know, That's they tempting. offered me a part-time job. And I said, you know, it, it was really a struggle for me. But for the first three or four years, I drove back and forth. And I liked it. Um, it was great, you know, as a part-time job, but I really like my farm. So, but it, you know, you want to see it come to fruition. The Martin story is so compelling. I want the place, I want the property to be restored sort of because of them. Right. Um, it's a right property so that, it, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright's vision, it's in an Olmstead park. 
it has so many elements of nature in it. Mm-hmm. It has to be fully expressed. Wow. And it has to be interpreted properly. Right. And I want to do it. Yeah. Well, and what an I'm kind of bossy. Well, and what an opportunity because it, it sounds like it had kind of fallen into dis- disrepair and kind of been neglected, and now you're part of yes. this this group of stewards who yes, are restoring stewards. it. Yes. Uh, but back to Mrs. Martin, yes. and you were intrigued because she, you somehow knew that she grew cut flowers, yes. or she was a floral arranger. Yes, that- she was a flower ranger, and she grew cut flowers, and she uh, had a greenhouse with three bays in it. Just for growing cut flowers. Wow, at the like early turn of the century. Yes. So now um, at the Martin House, well, I'm going to get to see this on the yes. Garden Writers Tour tomorrow. Is there a reflection of that history there? Were you so able to do right much? right now, um, no. Basically, the project is uh, being put out to bid this spring, and in 2018 will be fully restored. So it's going to be a huge project next year. The landscape. The landscape. Oh my god. The gosh. whole entire landscape. I put in a few gardens and I've restored the plantings in the urns, some of the window boxes. Uh, but next year we're going, the whole property will be restored. They had, uh, you know, peony borders and a huge florist cycle with 20,000 plants. And it was, she had a, he had designed a veranda, which was a square, and then a circle around the veranda, which is sort of the theme of the Martin House, the circle and the square. Oh, I love it. And then the circle was the floral cycle. In the beginning, it was a hemicycle, and didn't have, it just had shrubs in it and trees. And she wanted more flowers. So what is so, the term? Floricycle. Floricycle. Yeah, I don't know what that means. It's basically a half circle of a cycle of bloom flowers starting in April and going to November. Oh, just like uh, waves through the seasons. Yes. Cycle of Bloom. For the pleasure of the residents. For the pleasure of, of sitting on the veranda. And so they had the hemicycle for a year. They took it out and put in the floricycle because she wanted more flowers. Mm. And it's fantastic. The plant is, it's a unit plant. Mm-hmm. So it's a repeated plant. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's going to be fantastic. Oh my goodness. So oh, I, just I can't thought, wait to see what happens with that. Yeah. That's so exciting. So we have historic photos for you to see and interpretation of it. I've sprayed it out in spray paint and it's amazing um, the extent of the floricycle. So um, for the show notes for this episode, um, uh, we'll have maybe some links to the website at the yes, Martin House. Yes, okay. we do. Yes. That'd be wonderful. And then um, today you spoke about another project that uh, you're involved in, Gray Cliff, which is the summer house of this same family, correct? Yes. Okay. And there was a famous woman planting designer involved in that. Yes, I was Ellen Biddle by Shipman. That. Yes. Okay. Say her name again. Ellen Biddle Shipman. Okay. Yes. What was she known for? Just landscape design? She was, yes, not landscape design. Uh, she had an interesting life. Her husband left. She had several children to uh, support and she supported herself with landscape design. She worked with Charles Pratt and she um, studied landscape design and eventually built a fairly large company uh, designing gardens, uh, ladies' flower borders, sort of, sort of uh, arts and crafts, but also country gardens. Um, like in the twenties and thirties. Yes. Okay. Yeah, earlier than that as well. Wow. Yeah. But the period of this home was nineteen twenty-eight. Yes. Okay. And you're, um, so you're kind of dividing your time between these two properties. Yes. Yes. Uh, I was really intrigued about how the cut flowers um, are being restored, and you said two one thousand square foot, like a double border. Yes. Or? So at Great Cliff, they had. Uh, extensive harvest gardens because they went from the Martin House and they moved there and of course that was the Depression era so they were growing a lot of their own food and they lost their harvest garden in the city. They sold a lot for a house so they moved a lot of their plants to Greycliff and their vegetable garden there and um, they had picking flower borders because Isabel wanted to pick flowers and so they have 
uh, a walkway down, a central walkway, and on either side is a thousand square foot picking borders. Um, it has a stone wall on one side and a privet hedge on the other side. Yeah, the pictures it's you showed. It's going to be beautiful. And you just said you have acquired like 400 new perennials that are going in really soon. Yeah, about 450 plants. <laughs> we unloaded off a truck the other day, and uh, those are going in this fall. And by the spring, we'll have the whole entire garden will be restored. And in your research, you had to try to identify uh, perennial, flowering perennials that yeah. she would have been cutting from. So all of my um, cut flower experience, I've always grown perennials as well as annuals because mm -hmm. I had to have a long season. Right. I wanted to sell from May right through till December and did Christmas things. And one of my thing was I want to cut every, I want to make use of everything. So I, I could identify a lot of the flowers in the photos. So from being, from coming from that cut flower perspective, I knew that she had these certain varieties was obvious in the pictures. Right. So I studied Ellen Biddle Shipman around that period of what other plants she used. She uh, designed the gardens at Stan Hewitt um, in, in uh, Ohio. So I took from that as well and chose, I think I probably have 30 varieties of, they're probably fairly well known, you know, peonies and iris and all the sort of standard, very stalwart. Um, Cottage garden flowers. Survive. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So, um, when you can't find records, you do other creative sleuthing to figure yes. out what belongs in the garden. I, I researched, yes. I researched Ellen Biddle Shipman. The archives are at Cornell, and they did an extensive research on Ellen Biddle Shipman's picking border, and it refers to a plan. On one of, the, one of her plans, it refers to the cutting garden plan, and yet it has never surfaced. Oh, my goodness. So we don't know if it exists or if it doesn't exist. So I am I, still always on the lookout for it. Oh my gosh, But I'm Nelly. always trying oh to follow my... leads to find it. It's kind of like, yeah, oh. it's very interesting. You need like a MacArthur grant for that or something. <laughs> oh my goodness. So um, you, you are also juggling your new role, well, your new-ish role. Um, wait, when did you actually, you joined in 2010, is that correct? Yes, the okay. Martin House and then Greycliff in um, just a year and a half ago, okay. they got a grant to hire me for two years. And uh, after the two years, I'll probably be directing what happens, but we'll have to hire some more help for that. So that that kind of grant, is that kind of what prompted you to think, all right, it's time yes. to move closer to Rochester and, I couldn't um, really do, yes. and sell my farm? Yeah, I couldn't yeah. really do live in Rochester and work here and still maintain my sanity. And yeah. I really didn't want to sell the place. It was a wonderful place, but it was so much work. And in order for me to develop other abilities and to help these places grow and be restored and be interpreted, I really had to give something yeah. up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it was difficult, but I I also do consulting and cut flowers. Yeah, so. I wanted to ask you about that. So, because yeah. um, we're kind of coming to a close and it looks like we're recording this right outside where a wedding's gonna take place and people keep looking at us like, girls, you need to move on. <laughs> <laughs> so dressed appropriately. I know, that's okay. Um, your, how do you, how did you end up becoming a cut flower consultant? I mean, that that's kind of a cool, Yeah. I don't know many, many people who are doing that. Well, I think it's because I've just been in business so long and I've been a member of the Cut Flower Growers Association mm -hmm. and my uh, website, is, you know, my Flower Fields website, I think um, I, I go into some detail about my background there and this firm that hired me in, in Arkansas read that and they read sort of resourcefulness mm -hmm. is what I've had and mm -hmm. I sort of had to morph into different roles mm -hmm. and um, I can use my background and my knowledge of many different things and problem-solving techniques and whatever so I think that's probably uh, 
helpful. Yeah. Well, it, someone downstairs um, described you as a Renaissance woman. Well, that's so. pretty nice. But <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, that's very, it's very nice. Thank you. But I'm still digging in the ditches and doing everything else. So you're still, I'm not sure how that's... still dirt on your nails. Yeah, exactly. I'm not sure how that's working out for me. But. <laughs> so, so Flowerfield's website is still um, yes. active. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so this firm, um, you said in Arkansas, yeah. has retained you to come in and help them yes. create a flower farm? Yeah. Well, they have a 32,000 acre grain farm, but they want to... Um, they have grain and rice and cotton and pecans. Other agricultural Other crops. agriculture, but they really want to grow something else. And they looked at intensive crops like vegetables, and that didn't really fit uh, what they wanted to do. They look at flowers, and um, there's not a lot of locally grown professional growers. And these guys are great growers. So my agronomic background with them sort of fits like a glove, mm -hmm. and it's just morphing into the... The flower they just need to learn a new category of, and of exactly, crop. exactly. And so, um, when is are you right in, in like planting right now? And will they come online next year? They're or? planting now and they're selling some, but we just um, we just have been done doing some marketing and they got uh, some a contract with uh, Kroger, which is a big grocery store there. So they're planning for next year to start to supply wow. quite a few flowers. Wow. They they advertise locally grown, but not a lot of it was local. Right. So I thought, you know, this this is where we need to start. So. Oh, you can have a big impact if you can get yeah. your brand. If, if they're going to market by their farm name yes. and say Arkansas Grown, yes. Yes. that's exciting. Yes. I really want to follow what and you do with And it's a wonderful that. farm. They're great people. And I know Woody is the manager, and I, he grew up on a farm there, and I know he's going to do a great job. So, mm -hmm. um, Do you think you'll continue to do more of that, sort of um, advising people? Um, yes. I do. I like to do that, but I also do some um, teaching in the landscape industry. I like to go out and I teach pruning and proper landscape care because I find that, that um, the, the, the horticultural techniques, the old-fashioned, real uh, scientific-based horticulture, it's, a lot of it is missing in the landscape industry. So I've been hired to sort of supervise and teach crews, you know, mm -hmm. differences in weeds, how to do proper pruning, mm -hmm. rather than hedging everything. Mm -hmm. right. So sort of bringing back some of those techniques. Wow. Um, yeah, so I, I do some of that, too, because that's very satisfying. Oh, my goodness. So when someone says, are you, what What are you, do you ever, do you answer, or what do you do? You you probably used to always answer flower farmer. I, I grow flowers, and now you're probably saying I'm a horticulturist, No, right? actually, I consider myself an agronomist first. Okay. Because everything starts with the soil, and everything, everything starts with the basis of the soil and the plant itself, and kind of that's what I think of. That's 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 basically always in the back of my mind, but then everything else is is um, not superficial to that, but it it's the next unfolding. Right. So once you have the soil and the plants and they're properly treated, so I'm sort of like always thinking about the agronomic aspects, the soil, the plants, the pest management, the the fertilizer, what what life is in there, what life right. is in the soil. Right. This is what I've been thinking of since I. In my education, and as as organic farmers growing up as a child, we used a lot of compost, manure. We'd take our horses and wagon, which we had horses. We would drive down to the local um, shore line, the the Verdure uh, Lake, and we would load up a load of seaweed and mix it in with horse manure. We were like the first major compost people. Yeah, and we would make our own garden mix because the clay soil was we couldn't grow anything in it. Wow. 
So I learned from that. That system so is how you're the thinking. System all, is yeah. how I'm thinking about a system all the time. Yeah, That's yeah. exactly how I think. I think the system, and then I think marketing, I think about marketing systems as well. Right. So I think, how can we do this? Because I had to do that. And education. Yeah. So your new role in basically preserving and, and restoring and renovating historic gardens that have a cut flower component, maybe that's giving you your little, your little fix to stay with cut flowers uh, because you don't have a farm anymore. But yeah, I also, well, I have a small farm in my backyard. Great. Yeah, I live in Clarence Center, and I have about 2,000 square foot of, of annuals, and I do, I've done several weddings. Really, really beautiful. So I still am growing oh, my I xanthus. I still have my Dahlia collection. <laughs> I have my 55 Chevy pickup truck. I got all my stuff, you know. So well, I, I love your story because you've done so many amazing sort of different chapters of your life, but there's a thread through all yes. of them, as you said, soil and, and flowers and um I think a lot of people, I, I've heard from a lot of people my age who are saying, God, I don't know, this wear and tear on my body being a flower farmer. I need to find something else that I can do to stay in this industry without the backbreaking work. And it's, you're showing that there are other venues and, and You can chapters. use your experience, yeah. and I've used my connection with the natural world. Like, I, I can just connect with it. I can see things. Like, my property before I moved there was really bland, and there was nothing really pretty about it and when I moved into the house I've transformed the property into mm -hmm. this mini little flower farm and everywhere mm -hmm. you look there's some beautiful flower mm -hmm. and it's not that hard to do to see um, opportunity in things yeah. you know I see opportunity everywhere and take that experience and help other people to achieve that right because it makes you feel Olmsted got this and frankly Wright got this it makes you feel good when you're around healthy, happy plants, healthy, happy trees. I'm studying to be a certified arborist because trees to me are very maligned. Yes. And, and they're not well understood or taken care of. And uh, I took my course to be a certified arborist. So that's my next journey as well. Well, you said a quote from um, the Martin family um, about Greycliff in, in our, your presentation about how they're spending all their time in the garden. And could you say that quote again and explain the the reason that was so significant and we'll kind of wrap up with that i okay. love that yeah well there was two things um, margaret said that great cliff is a place of uh refreshing breezes abundant sunshine and um or uh, refreshing breezes dappled sunshine and abundant harvest and then in 1931 darwin wrote to frank lloyd wright and said enjoying great cliff and living mostly out of the garden wow and they were Honestly, they were, and they were working together. There's photos of them working in the garden. There's photos of Isabel weeding, um, and that's what they did together. And they they write about it in their letters about the. the it was their lifestyle. It was their life. You know, yeah. the, the length of the sweet pea stems, and you would enjoy this, and you would, you know, I'm missing the magnolia blooms because I'm away, and you know, it's things like that that tied them together. Yeah. That are just so. Um, there's just so innate in people, mm -hmm. you know, when you read that, you, you feel it, you know what I mean? Well, and I think that um, personal story is what helps all of us become relevant yeah. and l learning about uh, our connection to the land and anybody, everybody has some kind of story like that. Right. And you're just, you're coaxing it out of this historic right. property and exactly. helping people connect Putting with that. Putting the pieces together. There's so much information in the archives at UB. It's excellent. Wow. Excellent well, research. I'm excited to tour the Martin House tomorrow. Yes. Yeah. I'm bummed that I won't get to see Great Cliff, but um, I will look forward to seeing yes. another time. And, and, and you promised to share some photos so people who yes. are listening to this 
if you are in the Buffalo area, you have to look up Nellie, see what she's doing, and uh, just maybe imagine what kinds of historic gardens you might be able to get involved in in your own area. That yes, there's lots of was them. a tradition. Cutting yes. flowers were were a huge tradition in this country yes. in the late. They were a huge early, tradition here, yeah. and even at the Richardson Olmsted Complex, they had greenhouses just for cut flowers for the patients' rooms. Wow. And they used the cut flowers in treatment of patients back wow. then. Wow. Which, to me, is just, when you read, That's read a that, it's, heart, it's heartwarming. It's, yeah. yeah, exactly. And they talk about how they cured patients with their working in the garden and enjoying the flowers. Thank you so much for being an impromptu guest. I am so delighted to get to meet you together. And share your story with the listeners of this podcast. And I know people will be checking you out online and maybe we'll put links to all your all your activities okay. so we can um, Thanks, Deborah. I really stay in touch. It. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for joining us today. The Slow Flowers community continues to grow with close to 1,500 members having joined our Facebook group and increased engagement on a daily basis over our other social platforms, including on Instagram. We are gaining momentum and your participation is key. The media continues to pay attention and Slow Flowers has received some great press lately, both in the trade media, thanks to our new partnership with Florist Review, as well as in print and online places. Rather than give you a list here, I encourage you to follow links to several recent news items, which I'll place at the top of our show notes for episode 315 at deborahprinzing.com. You'll especially enjoy my Montana Slow Flowers report featuring people, farms, and flowers from my recent trip to Missoula and the Rocky Mountain Gardening Live Conference at Chico Hot Springs. And be sure to share your news. Let's spread the story of Slow Flowers pioneers like you. The Slow Flowers podcast has been downloaded more than 235,000 times by listeners like you. Thank you to each one of you for downloading, listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. If you value the content you receive each week, I invite you to show your thanks and support the Slow Flowers podcast with a donation. The button can be found on our homepage in the right column. Your contributions will help make it possible to transcribe future episodes of the podcast. Thank you to our family of sponsors, Arctic Alaska Peonies, a cooperative of 50 family farms in the heart of Alaska, providing high-quality American-grown peony flowers during the months of July and August. Visit them today at arcticalaskapeonies.com. The Seattle Wholesale Growers Market, a farmer-owned cooperative committed to providing the very best the Pacific Northwest has to offer in cut flowers, foliage, and plants. The Growers Market's mission is to foster a vibrant marketplace that sustains local flower farms and provides top quality products and services to the local floral industry. Find them at seattlewholesalegrowersmarket.com. Longfield Gardens provides home gardeners with high quality flower bulbs and perennials. Their online store offers plants for every region and every season. From tulips and daffodils to dahlias, caladiums, and amaryllis. Visit them at lfgardens.com. Syndicate Sales, an American manufacturer of vases and accessories for the professional florist. Look for the American flag icon to find Syndicate's USA-made products and join the Syndicate Stars loyalty program at syndicatesales.com. Johnny's Selected Seeds, an employee-owned company that provides our industry with the best flower, herb, and vegetable seeds, supplied to farms large and small, and even backyard cutting gardens like mine. Check them out at johnnysseeds.com. 
The Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers formed in 1988, ASCFG was created to educate, unite, and support commercial cut flower growers. Its mission is to help growers produce high quality floral material and to foster and promote the local availability of that product. Learn more at ASCFG.org. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers Podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more American-grown flowers on the table, one vase at a time. And if you like what you hear, please consider logging onto iTunes and posting a listener review. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. Learn more about his work at kinetictreefitness.com. Thank you.